Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community powered show, we do need your direct support to be able to continue producing these episodes this entire year. So, if you are inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of just $2 at greendreamer.comslash support. We are continuing to offer our Green Dreamer planners made with recycled materials and created to support our holistic well being, and that you can find in our fundraising shop at greendreamer.comslash shop. Finally, I wanted to share that I just launched a supplementary live podcast called Uprooted, which will be more off the cuff and interactive, allowing for live listener questions and contributions. This means you'll be able to call in live and be a part of the episode recording. I may sometimes debrief what we first talked about here. I may invite some of our past Green Dreamer guests for more casual conversations, or even bring multiple people in with contrasting views to help us further expand our learnings. For more information on that and to share your suggestions on what you would want to hear, you can head to my newsletter, kamea.substack.com. For now, on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Alex Colas and Liam Campling. There is no question that fish populations have been decimated by industrial fishing. But I would argue that's not because of the tragedy of the commons, but agreeing with uh, Longo and, and colleagues that it's a tragedy of the commodity because the logic underpinning industrial fisheries isn't a logic of use values, catching fish in order to eat them. It's a, it's a logic of exchange values, catching fish in order to sell them to make profits. Alex is a professor of international relations at Birkbeck University of London, and Liam is a professor of international business and development at Queen Mary University of London. Together, they are the co authors of Capitalism and the Sea, in which they in part challenged a particular variant of liberal thought that portrays the ocean as this site of seafaring freedom, peace, and prosperity across maritime states. From Athens, Venice, the Dutch Republic, and Great Britain, culminating in the USA. Instead, Alex and Liam deconstructed these liberal fantasies by shining a light on the more truthful reality of what the ocean really represented and enabled. Well, let me kick off with perhaps the most harrowing association of sea and armed freedom, which is the Atlantic slave trade, or indeed slave trades. Prior to the 17th century, there's a conception of the sea which is very much that of, say, Robinson Crusoe and the idea of, of an individual going out to sea, being stranded on an island, and somehow making up through ingenuity and, and their imagination and fortitude and resilience a, a new world, creating a new reality that is going to be prosperous and. And is going to generate wealth and peace and prosperity. So, that image of a, an industrious individual is actually what, what Karl Marx himself called a Robinsonade, something that you know, we, we pick up. The reality, of course, for a good two or three centuries across the Atlantic Ocean was precisely the opposite was the enslavement of millions of Africans. The transfer for the purposes of profit making and their, the forcible put of, of that labor to use in plantations, which were instrumental to the development of industrial 
societies in Britain and then in other parts of Europe as well. So that is perhaps the, the best example of how the Robinson aids of this world, which to bring it to the 20th and 21st century, often appear in the shape of so-called free trade or the ideas of the container ship making the world smaller and more prosperous, actually overlook the realities of very deeply stratified, racialized, hyper-exploitative, opaque practices on ships and at sea today in order to transport 90% of everything, as the book's title goes. There's all kinds of interactions onshore, then at sea, which are, as I was saying, hyper-exploitative and discriminatory, sometimes involving their extreme cases, modern-day slavery, which are hidden away. And so what I guess we're trying to say in the book is that the relationship between capitalism and the sea is certainly one of opportunity and of innovation and profit-making. There's no question that there's been a great deal of changes, transformations, indeed, to some extent, progress through the sea and via the generation of, of markets. But those are always deeply unequal. In other words, they they benefit some while simultaneously and necessarily not benefiting others. And that's really at the heart of what we're trying to say, that this fantasy is a fantasy in, in the double sense uh, that it's it's unreal or that it hides certain realities, but that it's also a very uh, a fantasy in, in that it's therefore just one-sided. It, it, it gives us one version of reality which tends to benefit those parts of the world and those peoples of the world that are already powerful and privileged and, and prosperous. Yeah, I mean, to take, for example, the maritime logistics and its centrality to holding together an ever more complex world economy of just-in-time production of moving intermediate goods around the planet to be assembled very often in China, there is no question that that process has cheapened goods on a global scale. But the question that has to be asked is at, at what cost? And as Alex was pointing out, the, the various labour regimes of the planet that are put in competition against each other in order to make those products ever cheaper that the sea enables very often are ignored. But there's another layer here, I think, that's also crucial and that really does throw up the, the fantasy of this liberal utopia, which is the ecological contradictions. And they are no more seriously felt than in the ocean. And so it's Andreas Malm who, who points out that the future is already embedded or enmeshed in the sea in the sense of the, the deep heat that it's been storing from our activities over the last kind of hundred years and especially in the last 25 years. And so these liberal fantasies are fantasies on another level as well, because ultimately they cannot be sustained. They will be undermined through global warming. Mm. The basis of your view is that the separation of Earth's geography into land and sea has had significant consequences for the development of our global economy today. And it can feel a little abstract to understand this. So I wonder if you could clarify how this creation of the binary of land and ocean has played out and ties into this historical backdrop you just offered. We start from that very 
basic premise that the ocean's biomass, it's the minerals that lie in the sea subsoil, can be extracted, can be appropriated. We spent a lot of time looking at that. I'm sure Liam will have something to say about this in just a minute. But it's done under circumstances that are radically different to that which would be the case on land. The attempts at enclosing the sea, which have been successful through the exclusive economic zone, take on a very different form to that on land, where enclosures have historically, certainly since the advent of capitalism, been about fencing land, appropriating land as exclusive property. That's something that is much harder to do at sea, not least because also the biomass moves itself. It's, it, it doesn't respect boundaries or, or territories. I'll just add briefly that when, when we think about our lives, we, we have a very much a, a terrestrial view and the, the ocean is very often just a backdrop. You know, if you're lucky enough to live in a coastal city, for example, You'll be looking out at the ocean. Perhaps you'll be using boats on a irregular basis. And but for most of us, despite the fact that the planet's seventy percent of our area, uh, it's a tiny part of the story in our minds. Despite that, it's a central place as a place of work, as Alex was mentioning earlier, for the people that work on boats and rigs and vessels and so on. But it's also a place of circulation uh, that the movement of goods and people and, and ideas. And it's it's been precisely through the global ocean that the civilization that we now have has been, been made possible. But when we think about civilization, we still tend to see it in a quite binary way by thinking about the land as separate from the sea, but they're always entangled. And so if you look at the history of the vast majority of civilizations, they very often have a seaward gaze. And I think it's our attempt in the book was to try to move beyond the ways in which people historicize capitalism as being primarily about the land, but to think about the relationship between the sea and the land as an always already kind of dynamic in how we do things, how we live. And I think that that often gets missed, not least because we're kind of terrestrial beings ourselves as as a species. Mm. And I guess to speak to this further, in terms of what you call nautical internationalism, you share about how the sea has facilitated the development of international public and commercial law, and with that, the foundations for multilateral governance across nation-state borders. For a lot of people, this sort of international cooperation feels necessary, and even what gives people hope in terms of offering a platform for something like global climate action. But you highlight the limitations of our present multilateral efforts, maybe based on how they've been set up and what parts of the foundation holding up this web of relations that they are at the core unwilling to question. Can you elaborate on this contradiction you see and why this form of global cooperation that so many look up to and legitimize as where meaningful structural change for the world can come from perhaps isn't enough to facilitate the systemic overhaul that a lot of people recognize we need? There's one key to that introduction, and that's the centrality of the state and the state system. Now, in the book, we we take very much a kind of open view on the possibilities of uh, state cooperation for producing, let's say, better outcomes. 
and the creation of the exclusive economic zone in the 1970s and customary international law and, and the law of the sea in the 80s as being one of those examples. And so on the one hand, it was very much driven by former colonial powers using their overseas countries and territories, like their, their small islands, in order to expand these incredible areas of oceanic territory, which are much bigger than the US, for example, EEZ. The US EEZ is, is enormous when you start bringing in the various overseas territories, and that's the same for the French and, and the British and others. So there's this very strong kind of story of appropriation. And you contrast that with somewhere like China, which has a tiny EEZ who played a very minor role in these negotiations and, you know, didn't have overseas territories because it didn't have colonies in the same way that the West did. And so as a result, this is part of the story of the current kind of conflicts that you see on a maritime scale. In fact, the, the nationalism, the opposite to nautical internationalism, you see this kind of increasing nationalism. Now, one of the reasons why uh, I think that this is such a tight issue right now is precisely because of the highly uneven outcomes of those negotiations. However, at the same time, Lots of small island developing states and other coastal states were very keen to be able to capture control over the, the, this kind of area of oceanic space, the exclusive economic zone, because it gave them a claim on any marine resources or seabed resources that were existing within that area. And many countries, in fact, now depend upon that part of the ocean and consider themselves to be oceanic states especially in the Pacific Islands. I mean, these are tiny areas in landmass terms, but a country like Kiribati, its exclusive economic zone is the size of Western Europe. And so they depend upon this. So on the one hand, you have this kind of quite contradictory process. On the other hand, you have another kind of aspect of oceanic kind of internationalism around the legal systems, which is the, the RFMOs or the regional fisheries management organizations where countries of the world get together and try to find ways to manage resources. Now, in many cases, this system is highly fragmented and you see a kind of classic north-south divide playing out. And in that process, you see rich countries, the Europeans, for example, or the East Asians really trying to dominate coastal states. But then you go to somewhere like the Western Central Pacific, and the coastal states there, primarily islands, have never worked together in a genuinely bottom-up process of internationalism. And in doing so, they have kind of wrestled control from uh, the distant water fishing nations of this giant tuna fishery, the largest tuna fishery in the world, and are managing it much better than all of the other countries. So what this story tells us is, is a couple of things, but the, the most important thing perhaps is that top-down liberal internationalism can have its benefits, but very often it's a set of rules that are written in the interests of those of the powerful. And so the multilateral system as a whole works like that. On the flip side, in the case of the Pacific Island countries, they essentially wrote the rules themselves in their own interests. And their interest is the long-term sustainability of the oceans because they are oceanic states. And so in the process of standing up to the, the big distant water fishing nations, they've created a much more sustainable fishery. That's a good illustration of how our approach to the relationship between land and sea is, is not 
of saying either or, but rather both and, in the sense that the C offers, as Liam was just outlining, opportunities for international cooperation at the same time as it reinforces certain hierarchies. And those dynamics are relatively open. And I guess all we're trying to emphasize is that the C is quite a unique space for that dialectic between opportunity and obstacle. It's, it's, it's distinctive, it's peculiar, but not exceptional. You, you're never far away from land when you're at sea. And I guess what I want to clarify is that I feel like oftentimes when people think about international cooperation, what they envision is the heads of nation states coming together to negotiate and form, you know, some sort of agenda or plan that they then carry out. But there is another way to envision international and global cooperation that is based on perhaps intercommunal cooperation and cooperation between everyday people. Yes. The way that we think about multilateralism is very much in a top-down kind of way, but actually the, the real hope is in this kind of bottom-up processes. So whether they are these small, insignificant islands working together or its crew on boats collaborating in order to try to get a better deal for themselves, but also in having kind of more forward-looking approaches to, to the environment. So take, for example, the International Transport Workers Federation, which is a federation of all transport workers in maritime, non-maritime. But they've been working for many years to try to better regulate working conditions, but also environmental conditions at sea. Because the International Transport Workers Federation knows that the future of its members is in a sustainable planet. And so you see the labour movement putting considerable pressure on employers and in government, on governments to try to move beyond fossil fuels, or at least certainly to move beyond the especially dirty fuels that international shipping uses. And so there's a, there's a lot of hope there, I would say, and much less so with the current system of, of top-down kind of essentially hypocrisy that we see around us. We saw it very much at COP26, and it's unlikely without the kind of bottom-up pressures, this genuine internationalism, that world leaders will do anything of meaningful uh, outcomes. Yeah. I wrote a very critical piece of COP26, so I'm absolutely there with you. I labeled it as smokes and mirrors because I personally have not seen actual tangible change coming from these sites where supposedly the changes can come from. Also because I understand sustainability to necessarily involve the decentralization of power, and that is not going to come from the sites where the global powers are essentially congregating. And this next question might be more for Liam, but to dive deeper into a more specific part of how the sea has been taken advantage of, a chapter of your book focuses on the fishing industry and how its commodification has impacted traditional and local subsistence fishing communities, leading you to the conclusion that we're not facing a tragedy of the commons, but a tragedy of the commodity. And this reminds me when I interviewed John P. Clark of Between Earth and Empire, we explored a parallel thought in that it's not really about 
the tragedy of the commons, but it's the tragedy of a loss of community as well as a tragedy of the loss of the commons. So we covered how this prevalent view of our human nature and society might be understood in alternate ways. But how might we understand the drastic decline in global fish populations, as well as the increased strain on subsistence fishing communities through the angle of commodity? So first of all, I have to tip my hat to Stefano Longo, Rebecca Clawson, and, and Brett Clark, who wrote a great book called The Tragedy of the Commodity, which is on oceans and fisheries, which I, which I pinched that phrase from. The oceans are very often pitched as being a tragedy of the commons, according to Hardin's kind of thesis. And it's become almost a form of common sense in the way that people think about fisheries. But actually, it's an extremely narrow vision of how fisheries work and how human beings kind of work and interact. He, as you probably know, uh, Hardin was was very right-wing. He believed that there were too many people on the earth and that ultimately some would have to die. So he had it came from an extremely cynical perspective. But there, there is no question that fish populations have been decimated by industrial fishing. But I would argue that's not because of the tragedy of the commons, but agreeing with uh, Longo and, and colleagues that it's a tragedy of the commodity because the logic underpinning industrial fisheries isn't a logic of use values, catching fish in order to eat them. It's a, it's a logic of exchange values, catching fish in order to sell them to make profits. And so that is infinite. And insofar as you can continue to sell those fish that you've caught and process them in some way to maintain their existence as a, as a commodity, so ultra-low temperature freezing, put them in a can or whatever it might be, then you're, you're going to find a market and, and look at the kind of global consumption of fish products in kind of the OECD countries. It's, it's, it's very high. The outcome of that, of course, has been a complete divorce from the ecological basis by which that commodity exists. Now, on the one hand, this is a very bleak story for the reasons that you set out. On the other hand, there have been quite strong examples of certain countries better managing their national resources in very recent years, and actually including the United States. And it's been rebuilding fisheries. Now, the reason why it's been able to rebuild fisheries is not because of the tragedy of the commons, according to Hardin, it's because of the role of the state acting uh, in a more responsible way and very often undermining or blocking the interests of the narrow interests of industrial capital or big business. Now, big business is propped up on the global scale in international fisheries by a system of subsidies. Around $20 billion a year is given to marine capture fishing in order to extract fish unsustainably. Now, that's not management. That's not the kind of good subsidies. That's all bad subsidies. So, to make fuel uh, less expensive or to, to build boats and so on. And so we were talking earlier on about multilateralism. The World Trade Organization just last week was supposed to have completed its ministerial conference 12. And one of, one of the ob objects for the signature was an agreement on fishery subsidies. Now, the agreement that was drafted was, in the end, a very soft agreement. 
despite 20 years of negotiations and it being backed up by the UN Sustainable Development Goals as being one of the SDGs, the, the way that it ended up being drafted was essentially in the interests of distant water fishing nations. Mm. So it almost feels like we're kind of going back to, to square one. Now, in all of that story, small-scale fishers are completely ignored, despite the fact that they're the ones very often that are owner-operators, they're going out to fish themselves, taking the risks themselves, and and are very often the pluses, you know, supplying kind of important protein and nutrients to their local communities. Now, I don't want to paint a kind of overly romanticised picture of small-scale fishing because very often that's also a, a brutal and difficult occupation. But certainly, small-scale fishers are have a much deeper tie to the ocean than the various companies that have been engaged historically in marine fisheries, such as Unilever or or Heinz or even private equity like Lehman Brothers, <laughs> before it collapsed, was a, was a major owner of uh, tuna factories and boats. And you know these companies just have no interest in the sustainability of the resource insofar as it allows them to maintain profitability. And so the tragedy of the commodity is really this question of how the, the fetish of the commodity, the, the seeking of ever-expanding value and how that hides the real relationships at play, which are exploitation of people working on boats and the appropriation of the global ocean. And I think that having that kind of more clear-sighted view of what's actually happening can help us at least take a few steps back and engage it more critically. Mm. It sounds like a shift away from, I guess, blaming this on human nature as just how things are to the incentives that have been intentionally created and that are embedded within the system that we essentially made up. And to take a step back, so maybe this is for Alex, but if we were to look at the broader global commodity chains, shipping containers, as you say, are far more than a mere freight technology. You say it's a political artifact that facilitated a new international division of labor in the course of the 1970s, where global commodity chains deliver just-in-time production and assembly of goods across different low-cost geographical uh, locations, end quote. Can you speak more to how the development model of the shipping container sort of created the essentialness of this fossil fuel dependent global economy and obviously how it simultaneously exploits undervalued labor and the pre-existing injustices created from the wars enabled earlier by the ocean? You've mentioned war. This is a good example that there is a narrative of what we now know as the 40 or 20 foot equivalent unit, the container, that says that it was an innovation in response to the slowness and the friction in the global trade system. But in fact, the reality in many respects is that it required friction to Mm -hmm. emerge, specifically the Vietnam War or the very long and fraught process of transforming waterfronts, be it in Brooklyn, in, in New York City, or in the London London docks in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, really antagonistic class struggle strikes and union busting and legal innovations 
to create the kinds of conditions for what we now know as containerization, a very, very mechanized, now increasingly automated process. So the first thing to say is that the possibility of cheap goods circulating through containers is premised on that kind of violence, literal violence, as in, for example, the Vietnam War that allowed the pioneering sea land container enterprise to gain contracts from from the US federal government to transport materiel and weapons sometimes to the Vietnam War front. So violence in that literal sense, but also violence in the broader sense of breaking the back of whole neighborhoods and infrastructures in port cities across the world, turning, certainly if if London is anything to, to go by, warehouses into penthouses. The Port of London is nowhere visible anymore in in historic London. It's now, like most other container ports, many miles away from from the center of of the city. So that's one aspect of the much more fractious, friction, socially and economically friction-led process of containerization. The other thing to say, and and here I'll, I'll pass on to Liam in a sec, but is that containerization was premised on export led growth. So it's no coincidence that it's models like those of Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, now China, China's coastal economies, relying on containerization as that political artifact that facilitates a certain model of low-cost export-led growth that eventually is meant to lead those nations to climb up the, the value chain. I think that there's another, on this theme of violence, may I add just two extra points? One one is the, the question of the, the violence of the workplace. The container ship isn't possible, of course, without seafarers. And what's often missed when we think about the container vessel is the, the, the people who work on them. And, and boats have got ever bigger, and the number of people working on boats has become ever smaller. And so it's an increasingly kind of isolated, alienated existence when you're on the boat. And as Alex pointed out, warehouses into penthouses, even when you come to shore, the turnaround time that is demanded of the boat owners to maximize the return on their investment uh, requires that you spend very little time in these kind of soulless places that have become container ports that are outside of cities. And so it's worth taking a moment to think of the people uh, who, who work on the boats. But also then, as we kind of pointed out earlier, that the centrality of this network of container vessels plying the global ocean simultaneously, linking up uh, locations from East Asia, from the East Asian superhighway through to Europe and, and, and North America, the movement of goods without which you know most people like us talking now couldn't couldn't survive without and so there is this centrality of infrastructure that the container vessel provides and then there's another layer and the other layer is is the of the other shipping revolutions so the the incredible specialization that you see in shipping beyond just the containerization process but also tankers and dry bulk and various other specialized shipping that exists. So for example, to transport 
timber or to transport cars on roll-on, roll-offs. So it gets to be quite a complicated kind of landscape of these boats plying the oceans, shifting around this multitude of commodities without which the, the world economy and contemporary global civilization would most certainly collapse. Yeah, I absolutely want to really honor and center the workers who the entire maritime network and shipping industry and global trade is built off the backs of. And the question that I'm sure a lot are having to sit with is how exactly we can compost this current monster that is the global economy today, given how locked in it feels and how entrenched within it we are. And I'm at a point where I think being able to strategically target these sensitive spots of the system and the global network is necessary because otherwise it's easy for other efforts to begin feeling performative or like a spectacle for ourselves. And it makes sense to me when you say that in principle, seafarers, stalkers, and other transoceanic labor employed at the major choke points of global capitalism have the capacity to orchestrate international stoppages and boycotts. It would only take a small number of militant workers organized in transnational alliances to slow down or even block the arteries of maritime logistics, end quote. Yet in practice, of course, as you note, it is a lot more challenging. So I would love for you to share more about the roadblocks that you see here, as well as the possibilities of targeting these choke points and how we might learn to recognize them elsewhere. Thank you, Camille, for, for reading our book so closely <laughs> and, uh, and having such great questions, by the way. And, and that, that's a wonderful one because you're setting up the subtlety by which we're we're trying to make an argument there, but we agree that choke points are important possibilities for organising, for trying to improve working conditions. And we know, for example, from the International Transport Workers Federation and their flag of convenience campaign, that it can work. And, and the, the way that it can work, and, and this is where it gets complicated, is through secondary strikes. So, for example, we need, well, in the particular case, uh, we saw dockers working with uh, seafarers and refusing to offload boats that weren't part of the flag convenience campaign. And what it saw was employers coming to the table and, and, and desperately trying to reach a deal. Now, it had its limits, but what we see there that is a vision of how we might start to decompose the global economy is we have a vision of solidarity. And we see people who don't have exactly the same interests willing to take a hit to support each other because they know that in the end, we, they will benefit, as will not just them on an individual selfish level, but we will benefit as, as a species. And there are a couple of barriers there. And I think one of the big ones, obviously, is nationalism and, and the, the, the re-emergence of nationalism in the 21st century, which many, many people thought were dead, was dead. And what we see there is the difficulty of organizing, for example, uh, Chinese seafarers, and by that I mean uh, Chinese nationals, because of the dominance of uh, you know, the single national trade union and the fact that it doesn't really function as an independent trade union at all. And so what we probably need to see in order to challenge more nationalistic kind of visions is the re-emergence of place-based organizing, where one can imagine, for example, in, in historically in, in Los Angeles and the Californian kind of coast, 
solidarity is being built between dockers and between those working in the inland empire, which is warehouse workers, rail workers, and, and so on. And through that type of understanding of a choke point, I think that we can see genuine uh, movement. But I don't think that a, a singular approach is likely to work because we know that uh, capital is able to act extremely nimbly. And we saw that with the blocking of the, the Suez Canal. You know, very often that was seen as being an example of how a choke point can be a great success. But of course, if that was organized labor blocking the canal, we probably we would have seen a much more more brutal and rapid response rather than being a simple accident. But secondarily, and perhaps more importantly, what we saw was big business simply rerouting. And in that rerouting, they bypassed the canal, they went around the Cape of Hope. And in doing so, profit margins weren't particularly badly hit. And so if we really want to kind of decompose this the global economy, we, we probably need some combination of, of place-based organizing, solidarities across the global oceans, and recognizing the centrality of these choke points and using them in, in a way that's not just about a kind of narrow sectional interest, but that is about actively building solidarities across the seas. One of the things that's emerged for us from looking at capitalism of the sea is the internationalist possibilities present both historically and, and also currently in that I think we, we want to repurpose the progressive aspects of, of capitalism for more democratic social needs. No doubt, certainly in my mind, that might require some onshoring of manufacturing and supply chains. It, it certainly will mean narrowing, thinning out those supply chains so that we consume less, especially less stuff that is socially unnecessary. However, I, I would certainly want to see a post-capitalist system where we can import foreign goods, especially if they're medicines or books or, or ideas or, you know, to facilitate travel and transfer of people. So at a very general level, both in the lives of workers and communities that have had a sea-facing life and history, but also in, in the more sort of philosophical sense, there's an invitation to capture, reinvent, repurpose the possibilities of internationalism and of the saltwater cosmopolitanism you were referring to earlier in contrast to the sort of nautical internationalism from above. And this ties so beautifully into my next question for you, because you were talking about exports earlier, Alex. And when I personally came to the realization that, generally speaking, a lot of nation states are exporting a lot of the exact same foods and mass-produced products that they're then importing from far away at the cost of community sovereignty and at the benefit of transnational corporations, or because of the disproportionately undervalued labor of those in quote-unquote developing countries, the system is set up to suck economic wealth out of these places and into the hands of those in quote-unquote developed countries with larger currencies. It led me to the thought that if those with economic and social privilege were to reestablish regionalized systems for food and at least the most basic needs, 
to stop being reliant on this centralized system predicated on exploitation elsewhere, then that might actually help us to build leverage and even starve out the major corporations that currently are sustained by people being dependent on them. But I wanted to talk this through with you because I'm still evolving my thinking. And if I interpreted what you said correctly, your message is that while many believe that we need to quote, de-link from the planetary factory as a matter of survival, end quote, you think that we can embrace these connections enabled by the global economy and use that to create more democratic forms of governance and trade. So I would love for you to speak more to this sort of dynamic of like reclaiming power through building more place-based systems and economies and also holding space to allow for continued trade, as you say, for like medicines and so forth. I mean, I'll I'll jump in here. It's a it's a big question, and just to echo what Liam was saying earlier, Kamia, that it's it's really a pleasure to have a conversation about the book as you're reading it, because it obviously chimes. It seems to be chiming with the way in which we we intended for it to be read. But I think this is a complex issue because it's about praxis for, for where I sit. I don't think there is a blueprint. I certainly don't have it of what is to be done. And I'm personally, uh, Liam will speak for himself, very skeptical about hard and fast utopias that are off the shelf and that we can, you know, just refer to as the sort of ABC of of socialism or communism or whatever other ism. I think, and this is going to be perhaps an unsatisfactory answer, but a lot relies on on doing, on how we do, how we organize, how we challenge, campaign for, reorganize in, in struggle oftentimes our, our, our daily lives. And, and Liam was mentioning the state earlier. I think that's a very powerful institution in most parts of the world, not everywhere, but in most parts of the world. And those of us that have at least some degree of political representation and political democracy can and should use the state and local authorities, city authorities in a city like London. The Greater London Authority still has got limited powers, but there's ways in which we can change procurement patterns, for instance. A lot of public money and shipping is absolutely no exception. If if anything, it's, again, at at the forefront of subsidies and of public funds being used generally for private gain. And therefore, the kinds of ways of thinking about having both a cosmopolitan and internationalist outlook that is simultaneously one that is about reshoring and sustainability in the much longer term and about much more democratic distribution of wealth, I think will mean specific campaigns and struggles at those sites, be they the local, the city, the nation state or, or region. And from where I sit, that's kind of indeterminate. You know, it depends what one is targeting. Certainly, Liam was, was mentioning carbon and our decarbonization has to be connected, it seems to me, through reconfiguring our supply chains and, and therefore shipping clearly is part of that, as is the global oil economy and the tankers that that ply that those fossil fuels through the seas but ultimately it's it's really not about the sea or land it's about what kinds of ideas and power do we have to reconfigure for instance the way in which we circulate around 
big cities or how our housing, our new housing stock is built so that it it is more efficient in terms of energy or, again, in terms of how we consume food, trying to reduce and narrow, shorten and narrow those supply chains and think more about the way in which, for instance, the way we consume food is connected to the way we produce, right? So sometimes it's not even about supply chains, but it's about reducing the working week so that we work less, and so that we're more productive, and that we perhaps we have more time to develop skills and uh, leisure that might eventually allow us to uh, to cook and, and eat in more communal ways, you know, that we often see in on Netflix or uh, in, in certain kinds of more romanticized versions of, of what it used to be like to consume. So it's a, it's a long way of saying that for us, uh, and I, I, Liam will come in here, make sure that I'm, I'm speaking for both of us, looking at the at capitalism through that terraqueous lens, uh, looking at the connections between land and sea, then opens up questions about, okay, let's, let's think about the specific location, the place, the power relations, the social relations that underpin a specific problem that we're trying to deal with, be it decarbonization or be it workers' rights or be it environmental sustainability? Yeah, I'd just like to add just a couple of extra thoughts onto that. And I, and I especially enjoyed the way that you typify, Camille, the, the the sucking of economic wealth out of the global south and by, by multinational corporations. And then I think that that's, that's very evocative and, and about right. One of the chapters of the book is called Offshore, and although we have quite an expanded definition of offshore, one of the aspects of offshore is, of course, global tax havens, and there is a kind of strong maritime dimension to some of those. And when we start looking at the interplay of the global tax system and the movement of commodities through containers, fast-moving consumer goods or coal or, or whatever it might be, you start to see this kind of value-sucking mechanism playing out on, on a global scale. And so states very often have been rolled back uh, historically from in the 1980s onwards through structural adjustment programs and from the IMF and the World Bank to, to, to make them, precisely to make them more export-oriented to make them more seaward facing. Now that's given them in some cases a greater kind of wealth for some, but of course it's also made them increasingly uh, vulnerable to movements in the global economy and the vagaries of international finance on the other. So although we saw this process of the state and kind of being rolled back with COVID, we've seen very much how the tentacles of the state can be very effective and fast moving in order to deal with a, a real problem. But unfortunately, what we're seeing at the moment is, as we saw with COP26, is a return of business as usual. And instead of seeing ambitious uh, approaches that really try to get at the, the fundamental problems of the, the dumping of greenhouse gases and the extraction of biomass and of, you know, from the entire Earth system, we see techno kind of financial solutions based around carbon capture and storage or, or carbon markets, again, being kind of touted and embedded in the COP26 process. 
But what's missing from that story is precisely the offshored trillions of wealth that are swimming around virtual bank accounts that really should be the resource that could provide for the necessary socio-ecological transition. And by that, I mean the socially and, and just transition towards the decarbonized world where we're living in something like greater harmony with the planet, where we're living in a system based around more agroecological food systems, where there will be, of course, international trade, we would hope, because we wouldn't want everyone to be living in autarkic islands. Uh, that sounds awful and depressing. But we would certainly have much less, substantially less, international trade. But for all of that to happen, we have to consume less. And, and ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And one of the problems coming full circle back to the point of the of COP26 and the failures of multilateralism is that it is very difficult for the contemporary capitalist leaders, state managers to accept on any level that we need to consume less in order to be able to sustain our species. Mm. Well, we're wrapping up the main portion of our discussion, but as these are often heavy topics, I wonder if you might have any additional insights or realizations you've made through looking at our current crises through this maritime lens that might offer glimpses into our possibilities as well as help guide our listeners towards perhaps actions that you recommend they take or questions that they might sit with after this conversation. One thing I would say, kind of spinning back to this 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 point on the relationship between the social, social and the ecological, is that it's I think increasingly obvious that our cultures of consumption are are unsustainable, and I think that there there is a bit of a zeitgeist amongst at least certain segments of of populations that there needs to be change, and there, I think that there is a willingness. Um, you know, various global surveys during COVID have shown that there's an increasing awareness of risky tipping points in terms of the Earth system, that there, there is a need to decarbonize, and that there is a need for people to change their consumption patterns in order for us to be able to sustain ourselves as a species. So I think that there, there is a growing awareness, and I, I take some hope, I suppose, in that. What has been an impactful publication you follow or a book that you've read that you recommend? So I've got a book that's just come out called The Sea State by Tabitha Lasley, which is a, a sort of fictionalized memoir dealing with the North Sea and her relationship as a, as a journalist with a 
an offshore man, um, and I think it brings out the the real lived experience of the land and sea relationship very very beautifully. I've been teaching with a colleague called Elena Baglioni about environmental change and corporate strategy for the last three months, and we've kind of finished with a little book called The Care Manifesto by by the Care Collective. And we've used it as a teaching tool. And it's, it's a great little book on trying to get beyond kind of narrow political economy issues in how we understand you know, the global economy, but also to embed community and, and ecology and, and kinship and how a more kind of greater care in how we think and feel and, and be with each other uh, is most obviously a central step forward. And so that book is a a neat little read, I think. What mottos, mantras, or practices do you engage with to stay grounded? The mystery of the world is, is for me, one of the things that, that keeps me going, that um, around the corner, there's always something to amaze you. Not always a good thing, but it keeps one sort of alert and alive. Yeah, sim- similarly, I, I, I'm a great believer in having a, a hopeful kind of view, even if the world feels like it's uh, falling apart at times. And what are some of your biggest sources of inspiration right now? I'm I'm really heartened by the new generations coming up in political activism. I was invoking earlier a realistic sense of hope, and I see that in people that I work with politically or that I teach in my professional contexts that are really hard-nosed and clear about the challenges that we're all facing politically in in the sense that we've been talking about. And I'm learning a lot from from their sense of uh, hopeful realism. Yeah, I'm going to be really boring here and say pretty much the same. (laughs) I think that there, there is a genuine hope of how things can be changed amongst the generation of people who are teenagers, kind of young adults now, and of course, children. And it's precisely through that clear-eyed view, because they have grown up with the climate crisis in a way that we have not, even though it was always a, a background hum. And so their sense of urgency and their absolute unwillingness to accept any bullshit and to be played, which we saw in the 1990s, corporations playing their cards again and again, both by sowing the seeds of doubt around climate, but also by setting up, frankly, bullshit, golden trinkets in front of us uh, around uh, corporate social responsibility and so on, you know, as if voluntary shifts in consumption by individuals will change anything. We know that it will not. We know that it's part of a necessary story. But we also know that central to any uh, sustainable future or socially and ecologically just future is going to be the capture of the state by democratic forces. 
Well, we are coming to a close, but to our listener, you can find Alex and Liam's book, Capitalism at the Sea, at Verso Books, which will be linked in our show notes. And you can also follow them on Twitter at Liam Campling and at BBK Politics for the Department of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, where Alex teaches. Liam and Alex, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This has been such a rich and uh, multi-layered conversation. I'm really excited to listen to again. So I appreciate you so much. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invoke Alexander Hamilton. You know, we've got to stand for something so that we don't fall for anything. Keep dreaming, but keep your feet on the ground. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from just $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also greatly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Calliopeia Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Lara Bellows' A Woman and the Universe. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.